Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome to Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about global politics from a business perspective. My name is Matthias Katon, and today we will talk about the EU taxonomy for sustainable activities. Sounds complicated, is at least in parts rather technical, but quite important for businesses and business leaders. And to shed some light on this issue, I have a wonderful expert here with me today, Carsten Löffler. He heads the UNEP Collaborating Center for Climate and Sustainable Energy Finance at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management here in Frankfurt. He previously worked for Alliance Group, Allianz. Uh, he was the managing director there of Allianz Climate Solutions, the group's climate innovation hub. He is also a certified international investment analyst and he is the managing director of the Green and Sustainable Finance Cluster Germany or GSFCG. That's a lot of long names and acronyms. Don't worry, we'll put his bio in the show notes together with some links. So if you want to follow up and uh, see at his profile in depth, you can do so afterwards. Most importantly for at least today's topic is that he was also a member of the so-called TEG, the Technical Expert Group. And that was the group that is actually the mastermind, one might say, or the group that prepared the EU taxonomy. So he was right there in the heart of the matter. And then he also chaired a very important body, at least in, in Germany, the Sustainable Finance Committee of the federal government. So in short, he is a true expert and I'm very happy to have him here today. Welcome, Carsten. Yeah, thanks, Matthias, for having me. So I already used a lot of long names and acronyms and uh, probably some listeners say, oh no, wow, what? this is going to get complicated. So maybe we could start things off by having you explain in as untechnical terms as possible what the EU taxonomy really is and why it was introduced. Yeah, first of all, what it is... The taxonomy is basically a classification system for sustainable economic activities. And the main purpose of the taxonomy is to make things easier, in particular for investors in the first place, because that was uh, what the original aim was as a target group. You can think about uh, a supermarket shelf and uh, economic activities on, on that very shelf so that it's easy for an investment manager, for a banker, to identify what economic activities are actually green or sustainable. And by that, transaction cost uh, should be lowered and it, uh, kind of more transparency and clarity uh, should be brought to the market. Now, you mentioned an important term here, investors. So it's a tool for investors. Now, if I'm not an investor or if I'm not a bank, maybe I run a manufacturing company, why should I even bother? If it's not for me, it's for investors, do I even care? Yeah, the interesting uh, part here is that at the start uh, of the development of the taxonomy, it was very much about the financial sector because there was always a question by investment managers, what I'm going to finance, is this actually sustainable? There was no real answer to that in many, many cases. So the taxonomy was aimed to clarify that very question and to make things easier. Having said that, just uh, sitting in an office uh, in a bank or an investment management uh, company doesn't make things much easier. 
as long as there's insufficient data coming from the origin, i.e. the companies on the ground. And just looking at companies uh, from the outside, from a financial sector's perspective, doesn't make it much easier. There's quite some guesswork you can do, but basically, say, you're not an insider. And by that very fact, it uh, became clear that the data have to come from the source, i.e. the companies. And then at a later stage, uh, the regulator, the European Commission, introduced a chapter about reporting requirements uh, because it became clear that's going to be required. Okay. So uh, sustainability is one of these terms that everybody likes, everybody agrees. So I know that sustainability is a good thing. But at the same time, it's also quite hard, I guess, to define. And probably everybody means something different. So when you were in this expert group, I suppose you, you started by thinking a little bit about what does it really mean, right? What do we understand as sustainability? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. See, the, the taxonomy aims uh, to identify substantial contribution to one of the six European environmental objectives. So what does it mean? So it's easiest uh, for climate mitigation, so reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. In, in that respect, it's very obvious what the goal is, and that is net zero uh, carbon emissions uh, by the middle of the century, basically 2050. Right? In Germany, 2045, and other countries sometimes a little later, but roughly at the middle of this century. And that means that the taxonomy needs to be aligned with that political goal. In that respect, substantial contribution to that goal was the key issue that the taxonomy had to address. And in that respect, this as a guiding principle led to identification of economic activities and technical screening criteria to achieve that goal over the long term. The long term means by the middle of the century. And in, in that respect, uh, the technical expert group was tasked by the European Commission to come up with uh, the already mentioned technical screening criteria. Basically, rules that define what the, the European Commission tasked uh, the technical expert group in 2018 to support uh, the Commission with the development of technical screening criteria in order to identify economic activities that actually have a substantial contribution to the EU's environmental goals. And then the technical expert group looked into the technicalities of that, consulted numerous uh, experts in a very, very broad range of economic activities, ranging from energy to uh, manufacturing to IT to waste uh, treatment. So it's really very, very broad. Now, you talked a lot about climate change, and obviously that is probably the most important political topic when it comes to sustainability right now in the discussion. But that's only one out of the six dimensions, right? Could you explain what the other five are? Yeah, happy to do so. The uh, second one is climate uh, change adaptation. Third one is sustainable use and protection of water and marine resources. The fourth one is uh, transition to a circular economy. And there's a fifth one, it's pollution prevention and control. And lastly, it's protection and restoration of biodiversity and ecosystems. 
do they overlap or are there also some contradictions between these six goals? Now, that's a very interesting uh, point. Um, the taxonomy is designed that is uh, a key requirement that is substantial contribution to one of those environmental objectives. So then it can happen that there is significant harm done to other environmental objectives, to one of the other five, I mean, and that is a key requirement that that's avoided. So in that respect, there can be contradictions, but then uh, an economic activity would not be aligned uh, with the EU taxonomy. I understand. I think that's what they call do no harm policy or principle, right? Is that yeah, actually it's called do no significant harm. Oh, do no significant harm. Yeah, the significant is pretty important in this uh, respect because some harm is always done uh, by any economic activity. So it's about significant harm. Now, when I hear this, when I'm maybe I'm the CEO of a company and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm wondering, you know, okay, I'm trying to make sense what this means for my company. Now, there are some companies where this is obvious. Uh, let's assume, you know, I run an aluminum processing plant or I am an airline or something like that. I think most people understand that there is a significant biological impact that my company's activities have. But other companies that uh, are completely outside or is it something that applies to any company, even service-oriented companies? So the taxonomy defines a substantial contribution toward the use environmental goals. And uh, by that, uh, the taxonomy starts with economic activities, defining economic activities that are, that's a term, eligible. And eligible means uh, that an economic activity has a substantial contribution and at the same time does not uh, do significant harm. So, as you allude to, there's some economic activities that do not do any uh, substantial contribution or actually do not uh, do substantial contribution. So, those might actually do harm or just uh, are at an intermediate stage. So, that's one. And there's another part uh, of the economy that's not covered by the taxonomy, and that are those economic activities that just uh, by matter of fact never will be able to substantially contribute to the environmental objectives, neither doing any significant harm. So it's environmentally speaking, or speaking with a kind of environmental lens, there's no harm done uh, in any case. So those economic activities would never be part of uh, the taxonomy as it is designed right now. Could you give an example of what that might be? Now, the most prominent example for that is the service sector. You already mentioned it. Uh, the service sector in many, many cases does not have any major environmental impact, uh, neither positively nor negatively. And in that respect, say one would have to, to look at maybe some second order or third order effects, uh, but that's it, basically. And at, at, at this stage, there's no definition uh, for those economic activities because they are just fall outside the green, the sustainable taxonomy. And in that respect, there's some ideas to enlarge, to enhance, to extend the taxonomy to more breadth in terms of covering uh, all those sectors as well and uh, putting kind of a flag to, to those uh, and to help, for instance, uh, the financial sector to identify those uh, economic activities to prevent that um, activities that are just not green, but that 
are not harmful at the same point in time, are not mixed up with uh, potentially harmful activities. So as a very concrete example, we are sitting here at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, where the Indo-German Center is hosted, the, the sponsor of this podcast. So the Frankfurt School as a university would be outside of the, the scope of the taxonomy in its current form. Is that correct? Yes. Basically speaking, there's maybe one exception, and that is uh, related to climate change adaptation. Say so For Frankfurt School, it's not too big an issue, um, but climate change adaptation falls uh, slightly outside of the logic of the kind of how environmental goals are defined. Environmental goals uh, usually are defined as substantially contributing uh, to do to have an, an impact uh, on the environment, a positive impact on the environment. With respect to climate adaptation, there is no positive impact uh, on the environment if you adapt to, say, heat spells or heavy storms or flash floods. It's about risk management, basically. Uh, so it's uh, kind of preparing for adverse impact. So in that respect, the only way Frankfurt School could be affected by the taxonomy is via this climate change adaptation piece. I see. I, I, I mean, I didn't mean to talk about Frankfurt School. I guess that's a niche issue for most of our listeners. I just meant it as, a, as an example. So adaptation is, as far as I understand it, is basically preparing to better be able to live with climate change by, for example, I don't know, planting different types of trees as one example that are able to cope better with less rainfall or would that, I mean, yeah, that, that could be, be one. Yeah, that could be one measure. There's uh, other more classic measures. Uh, it's flood protection, for okay. instance, um, or kind of insulation uh, with respect to heat waves. Uh, water um, protection against water scarcity so that you have some water pools available in, in, in dry periods. So there's all kinds of very different uh, measures one can take with respect to adaptation. And basically, adaptation is likely to become more and more important as we are already seeing quite some warming in the system and that is going to, to move forward uh, in the same direction uh, in the next decades. That's for sure. So we have to adapt uh, to quite uh, an extent. So in that respect, um, it's for everyone to adapt. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. One of the things that we ask our guests is to make a bold prediction about the world in 10 years. We don't hold the guests accountable. We don't go back after 10 years and look at what they said, but we still want to encourage them to give our listeners an idea of how the world could look in 10 years in the area of their expertise. Yeah, so in my area of expertise, it's much about sustainable finance and how the financial sector has developed over time. What I think uh, we will see in 10 years' time, that kind of a sustainable economy, a sustainable financial sector in terms of environment, social issues, will be just not an issue anymore. It will be mainstreamed. It's just natural that financial institutions will take into account, also somewhat forced by supervisory authorities and some uh, regulatory frameworks, that they will account for sustainability-related risks and sustainability-related impacts that they will see a kind of financing transformation, then we will be in the midst of the transformation as a business opportunity. So in that respect, yeah, there's quite some, some optimism. You mentioned that the commission made 
the reporting requirements mandatory. Could you explain for whom or for which types of companies is it already mandatory and for which types of companies is it still looming in the future? So basically the uh, commission linked reporting requirements uh, under the taxonomy regulation to the non-financial reporting directive. And that directive addresses um, by and large, uh, large uh, companies. It's in most uh, EU member states, it's companies of 500 employees and above and certain thresholds in terms of uh, total assets and employees. In that respect, it's quite a number. It's roughly so between 10 and 15,000 companies in, in the European environment that uh, would be required as of basically now to start delivering taxonomy-related data. So as the taxonomy is a transparency tool, it's now up to the, the companies to identify their economic activities that can be pretty broad and to report accordingly uh, in their financial statements. So that is the foundation for the financial sector at the second stage uh, in order to capture those information, aggregate those information, and then communicate, for instance, with respect to financial products, mutual funds, for instance, on a portfolio basis, on an aggregated basis. If I understand it correctly, so that means that um, small companies, mom and pop shops, they're not included and they will probably also not be for the foreseeable future? So it's a bit in the in the making right now. There's negotiations uh, between uh, the co-legislators at the European level. That's the Parliament, that's uh, the Council, and that's the Commission. The Commission issued a proposal for uh, a new corporate sustainability reporting directive in April 2021, and there is uh, one aspect uh, that links to the scope of its application. And basically, the scope of its application is just in the discussion right now to what extent uh, the scope is going to be enlarged. It's likely that it's uh, going to be enlarged to large companies above a level of 250 employees. Uh, that is pretty likely. To what extent uh, smaller companies will be covered uh, by the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive still to be seen. There's indications that those will be left out, at least uh, by the CSRD, that's the directive. Having said that, it's uh, pretty interesting or important to see that irrespective of a company's size of operations, the taxonomy still might be relevant. When you think about a, a financial institution, a bank in particular, that uh, is required to report on taxonomy uh, data itself, it doesn't care too much uh, about the size of its client. So there will be some requirements by banking institutions, uh, even to smaller scale uh, companies, to deliver on taxonomy-related data. The reporting is mandatory, but there are no defined levels of pollution or harm that are permitted to companies. So the, the leverage, does it come indirectly through the financial sector? There's certainly some leverage uh, that is uh, coming through the financial sector. And basically, that's the aim of the European Commission uh, in, in the first place. Um, as it's openly saying that the aim uh, of its sustainable finance agenda is to redirecting financial flows. 
having said that, uh, the taxonomy is a transparency tool, nothing else. So it's not stipulating that uh, any economic activity is to be discontinued. Just it's it's a transparency tool. So nothing else. There's quite some incentive uh, within the financial sector to report larger green asset ratio. And basically that is the share in a portfolio that is aligned with the EU taxonomy. So there is some, I would expect, uh, competitive elements in this that banking institutions want to increase their lending to taxonomy eligible activities. And actually that is what the European Commission has in mind when it states, okay, let's try to redirect financial flows just by increasing transparency. So what will be the result? We'll have to see. So we are in early stages. It's still in its infancy. So we will have to gain experience over time. What is the incentive for banks to increase this ratio? Is it demand from clients or investors? Or what makes banks push for greener investments, in your opinion, or in the opinion of the, the masterminds behind this? Yeah, we will have to see how it's, how it's actually playing out. The point here is that just by reporting on the green asset ratios by banking institution, will likely kickstart a competitive element. There is comparison possible going forward. So one can see one bank is going to report a green asset ratio of X, uh, another bank is going to report a green asset ratio of Y. So then, okay, there might be questions from civil society as well, from shareholders, from other stakeholders. Okay, why is that? Is Why is the number particularly low? Why it's particularly high? So what is your policy in that respect? And as we see that the entire economy needs to be, for instance, with respect to climate, decarbonized over the next next decades, it might be an indicator how well, over time, a financial institution is prepared and how well it's doing on that very pathway. Do you personally think that that will be enough? Because, I mean, I don't want to be the, too negative or be the devil's advocate, but one could also say that in the past, if you look at the past, You know, by and large, banks have not been too concerned about negative societal effects, uh, you know, if it uh, suited their interests, let's put it that way. There's some elements. So it's, it's good to be a devil's advocate in, in, in this respect. So we'll have to see. No? So it's just guessing at, at this stage what actually will happen. It is a transparency instrument. Transparency instrument enhances information. And by that, so we will see what the effect of that will be. There's one very important element and I think interesting opportunity for financial institutions and that is to finance the transition that is ahead of us. It's a very large amount of investments that need to be made in order to make our economy more sustainable, to decarbonize. Say large investments in the energy sector in other sectors are required. And there's a big, big opportunity for the financial sector to harvest those economic opportunities for them as well, just by understanding what's going to happen over time, kind of on, on this decarbonization pathway, and to position themselves toward the clients, understanding what the client's challenges are going to be and what the investment needs might going to be, so that there's a good opportunity for those who understand that pathway going forward to actually, yeah, make good business. Do you think that maybe in the future regulators could also try to 
incentivize that by making it easier for banks uh, to lend to sustainable causes by, I don't know, uh, lowering capital requirements for these particular types of, uh, of credits, as one example? That's a very interesting debate that has been kind of in the market for quite some time, a few years uh, right now. My position to that would be that it's very important and supervisory authorities already have started with it uh, to understand sustainability and climate-related risks much better. Understanding risks and managing risks is a first step uh, in, in that respect, meaning that economic activities that are linked to business models that might be challenged in the future because of that transformation might come under stress. And that needs to be reflected just naturally, in any case, irrespective of any uh, other regulation, in the risk assessment, uh, in, in, in the lending operations uh, by any financial institution or in the investment operations. So by that, cost of capital will, at least in, in my view, over time be impacted. To what extent we will have to see as market forces, but already now supervisory authorities are requesting from supervised financial institutions to be pretty much on top of sustainability and climate-related risks. There's currently a climate stress test uh, running uh, by the ECB. So there's quite some attention by uh, supervisory authorities, and that's not going to, to go away. So to recap, from the business perspective, if I have a business, I run a business, uh, I'm in charge of one, I may have to report on these uh, things, depending on the size of the company. And uh, even if I have not, uh, because I'm too small or my company is too small, not doing so or not uh, thinking about these issues might severely limit my access to, to capital, basically, in the future. Is that, uh, in a nutshell, what one could say? It's not black and white in the first place. So it's very important to think about future-proofing the business model on the company level. So that's the essential part. Having the strategy right, having it uh, convincing towards the finances so that a credible story can be told. See, and that means kind of future-proofing the business model means access to finance at reasonable capital cost uh, will be ensured. If there is business model-related risks going forward that are not uh, sufficiently addressed, that might lead to higher risk perception on the, uh, on the lender's side, meaning higher, relatively higher costs of capital over time. If I have not uh, implemented these systems on uh, the level of my company, how, how hard is it to do? Uh, can I do it on my own? Especially if I'm maybe if it's not you know large large companies probably they they have teams who uh, are in charge of that. But you know, even medium sized enterprises may ask themselves you know can my own people do it? Can I ask my accountant team to set this up, or do I need to hire expensive consultants who do this for me? How complicated is it? Yeah, basically, the complexity depends very much on the complexity of the company. So there's large companies that are very complex, so it's, it can be quite a workload to get on top of all those economic activities, uh, to have transparency on that, and to review technical screening criteria, and in particular, do no significant harm criteria for all of those economic activities. Large companies already embarked uh, on that process. Uh, some of those already issued even experience reports, so how they did it, uh, what the challenges were, also addressing the European Commission to make things maybe a bit smoother. 
For medium-sized and smaller companies, it's much less complex because those companies, at least on the, on the broader scale, are less complex. Say there's not that much to read. There's maybe a handful or even less economic activities. And there's um, what you need to read for those economic activities. It's a few pages as per economic activity. So having said that, say it's... It's, it doesn't come uh, without any burden, uh, that's uh, for sure, but it can be handled in my view. There is, at least in many uh, cases, in many countries, uh, chambers of commerce can play a very important role in that respect to help their member companies to actually get on top of uh, that reporting. Executive Briefing. What you should read now. Executives have little time, but they still need input. They get input hopefully through our podcast, but they also have some time to read occasionally. So we always ask our guests to give our listeners one reading recommendation. One important piece can be a book, can be an article, anything that they should look into when they have some time on the plane, the next business trip. Yeah, what I would recommend is to browse the webpage of the network for greening the financial system. That is a network of central banks and supervisory authorities uh, working on sustainability-related issues in the financial sector with a supervisory perspective. They issue frequently very interesting papers that are very interesting to read, even for uh, a non-supervisory institution person, because it shows very much the conceptual thinking, what is in the making, uh, what we will see in the financial sector and just then trickling down to the real economy as to, say, uh, sustainability-related scenarios and stress tests. And that will affect not only the financial sector, but everyone in the commercial area. Excellent. And we'll make sure that we'll put the link to that website in the show notes as well. Now, we did not talk so far about where a company is headquartered or where a company comes from. And obviously, if it's you know within the European Union, then the, the regulations of the European Union apply to it directly. But how about companies outside of the EU? Are they also affected by that directly or indirectly? Or is it something that does not affect them at all? Yeah, company operating in the European Union, uh, companies that uh, have an established legal entity in the European Union just fall under the European taxonomy as all other companies as well. So looking at the international level, uh, a taxonomy is nothing out of the ordinary anymore. So we see at least 24 uh, taxonomies being developed are already in place on a global scale. So there's some countries already uh, published uh, their uh, taxonomies even further than the European Union. For instance, Colombia lately uh, did it. Mexico is working on one. There's taxonomy approaches that go beyond, uh, in a conceptual way, the European, the current stage of the European taxonomy, for instance, in the Asian states. So Asian, um, the, the, the organization, uh, published uh, pretty recently a recommendation how a taxonomy could be designed for the member states. So that's very interesting. Uh, it goes beyond kind of pure green. It's uh, then going into intermediate performance and harmful performance as well in order to have even more transparency beyond green. 
Now, I think everybody understands that this is important, but it's also, it's, it is technical by nature, these uh, discussions. And that also means that it does not really pop up that often in, let's say, the main uh, news uh, on TV. Uh, there was one exception, at least here in Germany, and that was when the commission uh, published uh, what I think in technical terms is called the Delegated Act. And they suddenly said that both gas and nuclear energy would be considered as sustainable at least for like a bridge period, a, a transition phase. And that created quite a bit of a stir, at least uh, here in, in Germany. And I know that you also weighed in. So I want to ask you two, two questions. First of all, what is your take on this? Do you think that is a reasonable thing to say and do? And then I'll, I'm going to do a follow-up question um, that says, you know, I think that directive was uh, published, when was it, earlier this year? And was it in January or something? Uh, since then, some things have happened that uh, many of us would not have thought possible or at least hoped for, which is, of course, the, the war in Ukraine. And that changed uh, a lot of things geopolitically. Does that also change what we have to consider when it comes in particular to nuclear energy? Mm. So to your first question, the first Climate Delegated Act came into effect in early December 2021. That covered uh, all kinds of different energy-related uh, topics. Gas was exempted because it was uh, seen as politically difficult. Nuclear was excluded much earlier, even by the technical expert group position. It was seen as a political issue. Then the European Commission published Complementary Climate Delegated Act uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, introducing what you just described, defining fossil gas and nuclear energy as sustainable economic activities. There has been a big debate about it, I think there's a conceptual mistake that the Commission does in this respect. It mixes up energy security with environmental performance. When we look at the proposal by the European Commission, there's many, many questions with respect to the technical issues as proposed by the European Commission. With respect to fossil gas, there's quite a number of loopholes with respect to, for instance, the environment performance after the mid-30s. See, there's some, some exceptions for fossil gas that uh, might be used till the mid-30s. When a financial institution finances such a gas-fired power station, then there's no security for the financier that after the mid-30s, the gas power station will run on low-carbon or zero-carbon gases. So that's first. Second, the principle of technology neutrality was given up. So there's no reason why, for instance, a geothermal plant doesn't get any exceptions. So when we start with exceptions, then say it's for everyone, but it doesn't make any sense if you have the, the political goal of well below two degree scenario in mind. And with nuclear, to, to follow up on, on, on that, The Commission's proposal foresees uh, that nuclear power stations can come online even after 2045, and that's no contribution to the environmental objective of climate mitigation at all. So when we look at the 2030 goals, how should a, a nuclear power plant contribute to such goals? And I have not talked uh, about the pollution uh, effects, because still waste handling, at least there's 
quite some substantial questions as to the quality of the feasibility of it uh, yeah. going forward and the, the long-term effects that could have. Then there's your second question with respect to Ukraine. Has it changed the perspective? My perception is that it has changed the perspective on gas in, in, the, in the broader public. So gas is now seen as uh, much more problematic. With nuclear, it's difficult to tell. There's still not too much sense uh, with respect to nuclear as a uh, as part of an energy system, at least from a German perspective. might look different with other countries, certainly. Still, nuclear power is a very expensive energy source. So we'll see what uh, will come from that. So it's heavily subsidized. It has been heavily subsidized uh, throughout Europe. Personally, I can't imagine that it makes economic sense. In the long run? In the long run, not yeah. at all. And in the in the medium term, because there's now a discussion going on. I mean, you said conceptually things have been mixed up, energy security and sustainability issues, which, you know, on a conceptual level mm. might make sense to separate the two. But in the practical, the real world as a politician, mm. uh, you know, all things have to be considered together. And there is a discussion now, um, in particular in Germany, in light of the, the current issues. Should we, because we want to reduce our dependency on, on gas, uh, especially, well, gas from Russia, obviously. Uh, so should we use nuclear power in the short run or should we use coal? Which one is the, the lesser evil here? It's a, it's a question about the energy system. And uh, for the energy system to work, uh, one has to have in mind what the quality of the energy sources is. So we are certainly in a win-win situation when we really boldly push forward the renewable energy uh, sector. So production of, of power from renewable sources is the way to go. And the energy system that works that way requires a backup power that can be regulated uh, very, very fast on demand. And gas is actually the energy source that can cater for that. I would think at least that we will have backup capacity with gas pretty, pretty much across the economy. Not so much coal and nuclear in the long term because those energy sources um, are much less flexible. Um, so it takes uh, days and even weeks for such sources of power to come online. And so that's that can't be done. No? And then a coal power station has to run and run and run. You can regulate a little bit, but not too much. So it's not really the longer term solution. So what I would expect uh, to happen is that we will have really a big effort on renewables. We'll have some backup capacity with gas. Ideally, it's not running at all. So Certainly, it will run at some point in time. So when it's dark and there's no wind, certainly we need some, some energy security. But it's not green. That's the issue. Thank you very much, Carsten, for being here with us today. This was an episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. If you like the show... Please make sure to subscribe to it on whatever your favorite podcasting platform may be. And of course, if you would leave us a review there or rate us, we would be absolutely delighted. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>